It's time for Security Now. Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson. Coming up, we've got a little bit of security news. And then Steve is going to do something quite surprising. He is he's going to go against his better political interests and judgment and actually explain why a cryptographic backdoor isn't necessarily a bad idea. You know what? He's right. Stay tuned. Steve Gibson and Security Now up next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 491, recorded January 20th, 2015. Cryptographic Backdoors. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. A good IT pro is always learning. And IT Pro TV is the resource to keep your IT skills and knowledge up to date. IT Pro TV offers engaging courses streamed to your Roku, your computer, your mobile device for a free seven day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for IT operations and developers to ensure that the right engineers are notified at the right time. Increase your uptime and sign up for a 14-day free trial at pagerduty.com slash twit. And by GoToAssist. Citrix GoToAssist offers a secure cloud-based solution for IT and customer support professionals to provide live and unattended remote support to their employees and customers working from any computer or mobile device. For a free 30-day trial, visit GoToAssist.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, and your privacy and your security. And here he is, the uh, explainer-in-chief our secu- We're going to call you the security czar here at Twit, Steve Gibson. Oh Lord, okay, I'll <laughs> I'll accept the title. You know, I was the watching. Uh, there's more. You know, it's amazing. Here we are, almost 18 months since the original Snowden uh, leaks, and there are more every well, it's day. The top of our so top of our news is uh, we, we didn't have much happen in this last week. It was relatively quiet, but what few things we did were big. Um, I should explain to our listeners that I, I've delayed the Q&A that was, I had planned because for the last week, I've been listening to all of the popular press, well-meaning though they are, um, not being cryptographers, going nuts about the concept of the, the government mandating backdoors and how it weakens security. Um, so that's the topic for today is cryptographic backdoors in the context of um, Cameron's and then, of course, uh, our the U.S. President Barack Obama's echoing of this sort of vaguely stated intent. But what I want to do is I want to get correct about the technology because that's what we do here. And everybody's got that wrong. It does not weaken anything to give the government access. Uh, that is, it doesn't have to. It shouldn't. And so, so the the so what I want to do is I want to separate out the question of policy, which is absolutely a topic of debate, and 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 discuss it with you some more, Leo, because we sort of kind of rushed through it last week and really didn't have a chance to look at the many different aspects of it. 
But I want to separate that from the technology because that's math. And we can give the government any kind of access we have to if we have to. And I want to talk about separately the technology trade-offs about that and and how the fact is that, I mean, compelling as the term backdoor is, it's possible to have multiple front doors and for them to be every bit as secure as the security we have now. Um, other than that, I want to talk a little bit about why the other so sort of like the only other big piece of news that occurred in the last week was we found out why it was that. Barack Obama, during his final press conference of the year that we talked about last week, seemed so confident that uh, in pointing the finger at North Korea as he took off for his uh, vacation to Hawaii. Um, I have some sci-fi thoughts and recommendations, uh, and then we'll get into our content. So uh, I think, uh, once again, a good, good podcast for everybody. Lots to talk about. Uh, I was watching, and I recommend... um it must have been uh, a year ago. The frontline piece, uh, there actually was there were two pieces on yep. the Snowden revelations and the NSA, uh, they call it the program for capturing all data. <laughs> and it's really well done, balanced, and a fascinating yep. uh, piece. So I'm, I'm very interested in, in all of this. And I have to say, I, uh, among everybody else, have been kind of uncritically saying, well, a backdoor uh, you know, uh, makes is makes the software broken. So I'm very interested in what you have uh, to say there. And in fact, well, and, as soon and, as you and mentioned not- that, I realized, of course, you could just give a key. You could have two uh, private keys and give one to the government. Uh, but people like Cory well, Doctorow, knowledgeable fellow, that's that was his chief. In fact, I think probably m- most of the people like EFF, that was their chief complaint: is a backdoor breaks. The code. So I'm very interested in what you have to say about that. Yep. And so, so uh, yeah, uh, for, for, because we're about technology here, I wanted to Let's clarify right. that. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. and separate that that aspect from from the politics. But the politics are fascinating too. Oh, so yeah. oh yeah. You know. So we'll talk about all of that. But first, we're going to talk about IT Pro TV, a great way for you to get the skills you need to get a better job, uh, to improve your worth to your current job. Or just to learn. IT Pro TV is a video network dedicated to the world of information technology. Whether you're looking to jumpstart a career in IT, if you're already working in the field, it'll supplement your traditional learning methods. It's fun. It's engaging. In fact, because you watch Twit, uh, it seems like it would be a natural. IT Pro TV, Tim and Don, who started it, were Twit fans. And they said, you know, we should do something kind of like Twit for IT instruction. Twitter or maybe the screensavers, and in fact, they have. They have a live stream. They have a chat room. They do about 30 new hours every week. The big difference between IT Pro TV and what we do is IT Pro TV is specifically dedicated to getting those certs that you need in IT. Uh, If you go to itpro.tv slash security now you can read up all about it they've got a guided tour online so you can see their video quality they have courses in every field i mean apple microsoft cisco a plus ccna security plus mcsa cissp abcdefg no it's which one of those is fake powershell even now which is awesome linux plus Courses cover every topic, like uh, network security, Linux and Windows OS X support for desktops and servers. It, it is not boring. The hosts are great. They're the, some of the best teachers, but they, but they also, which I really like, they make it fun. 
And if again, if you watch Twit, you're going to love it. You can watch it on your Roku. They've just added Chromecast support, which is really sweet. And uh, there's Don right there doing something. I don't know what he's teaching right now. I think he's. I think he was doing command line stuff. So this is pretty. They get pretty geeky in here. There's some other benefits to the IT Pro TV subscription. They have a virtual machine sandbox lab. So that means you can, even if you don't have access to a Windows machine or Windows servers, in fact, you can do this on a Chromebook, anything with HTML5 support. You can actually run a server, set it up, configure it. It's pretty pretty sweet. The Measure Up practice exams are also included with your subscription. They're worth $79. And, uh, and this is all for one low monthly rate, $57 a month, $570 for the entire year. But wait, there's more because I'm going to give you a discount. Uh, all you have to do is uh, go to itpro.tv slash security now, and you can get a free seven-day trial. I think that's a good idea. Watch the videos, see if they do what you want them to do. But you can also get a significant discount, uh, 30% off, and not just for the first month. Is he doing PowerShell? I can't even. It looks always oh, start restarting services. Yeah, this isn't PowerShell. Uh, you can get uh, 30% off, not just for the first month, but for the first or for the first year, but for the lifetime of your account. So now, when you use offer code SN30, we're talking less than 40 bucks a month, $399 for an entire year. That is such a good deal, uh, compared even to the cost of one book, you know. Annual subscribers also can download episodes, DRM-free and MP3s, so you can uh, do, and consume them online. There's corporate and group pricing available as well. Clients include HP, UCSD, Penn State, Stanford, many other schools and colleges, as well as groups that support our military. IT Pro TV, and to make it even sweeter, once you reach your 13th month, they'll reduce your subscription rate even more, bringing it down to $24.95 a month, or $249 for the entire year. Let's see uh, Let's see what's coming up here. It's uh, 4.43. Oh, yeah, they're done for the day. But today, listen to what they did just, just today. Apple Certified Support Professional, and then they did a whole series on A+, for the CompTIA cert. Um, they're doing that all week long, it looks like. They are always recording new stuff, which is fantastic. I just love them. ITPro.tv slash security now. Get a free seven-day trial, a free week trial for, uh, for it, and receive 30% off, but you have to use the offer code SN30. We really, uh, we're big fans of Tim and Don and the gang, and I think it's a great way to learn. A lot more fun. And just you know, going to a technical school or picking up a yeah, yeah. a lot less dry. Oh yeah, they're they're amazing. Yeah. All right, news of the so, week, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, in a very light news week, we had one really interesting tidbit, which was the the news was broken by an investigative reporter named named David Sanger, uh, who writes for the New York Times. Um, I I saw him interviewed yesterday. His story appeared in the Times yesterday. Uh, headline was NSA tapped into North Korean networks before the Sony before the Sony attack officials say, and so my own my own headline for the podcast for this was uh, let's don't estimate underestimate the NSA. I think maybe th- there's sort of a tendency to to think well that's sort of big and bureaucratic and you know stumbling over their own feet, but. Um, the the technology that's evidenced in the document, there was a sort of a companion document that uh, uh, Der Spiegel published. Uh, I have a link to it. 
Actually, I made a bit.ly link for the show, bit.ly slash sn, lowercase sn hyphen 491. Um, and that takes you to a three-page PDF, which is a a couple uh, pages from what looks like an online conversation. Uh, and well, I'll get to that in a second. I, I first tried to sort of like paraphrase what David wrote, and I thought, okay, I can just do the a better job if I just share the first, the, just the first o- opening four paragraphs of what he wrote. He said, "The trail that led American officials to blame North Korea for the destructive cyber attack on Sony Pictures Entertainment in November winds back to 2010, so four years ago, according the- to." Unnamed government sources. Very important to point that out. Correct. He said, when the National Security Agency scrambled to break into the computer systems of a country considered one of the most impenetrable targets on Earth. Spurred by growing concern about North Korea's maturing capabilities, the American spy agency drilled into the Chinese networks that connect North Korea to the outside world picked through connections in Malaysia favored by North Korean hackers and penetrated directly into the North with the help of South Korea and other American allies. According to former United States and foreign officials, computer experts later briefed on the operations and a newly disclosed NSA document. Um, He said, a classified security agency program expanded into an ambitious effort, officials said, to place malware that could track the internal workings of many of the computers and networks used by the North's hackers, a force that South Korea's military recently said numbers roughly 6,000 people. Most are commanded by the country's main intelligence service called the Reconnaissance General Bureau and Bureau 121, its secretive hacking unit with a large outpost in China. Okay, so what's, what's really interesting is this the dialogue in the document that david refers to which uh spiegel published um which is a a a, a sort of a snippet of top secret marked as such conversation where somebody wonders about the term fifth party collection like what's fifth party collection and 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 so poses the question: Is there fifth party collection? And some individual responds: Yes. There was a project that I was working last year, and we don't have any dates here. So this sounds like this is the the, the, the four years ago, 2010 time frame. There was a project that I says this writer, who's anonymous here, we don't have his name either, or hers. I was working last year. With regard to the South Korean CNE program, CNE, of course, is the acronym for uh, Computer Network Exploitation, sort of general, you know, penetration and exploitation. While we aren't super in, while we aren't super interested in, he writes, SK, South Korea, then in parens, things changed a bit when they started targeting us a bit more, close parens. We were interested in North Korea and SK puts a lot of resources against them. At that point, our access to NK was next to nothing. 
but we were able to make some inroads to the South Korea CNE program. We found a few instances where there were North Korean officials with South Korean implants on their boxes. So we got on the exfil points and sucked back the data. That's fourth party. However, some of the individuals that South Korea was targeting were also part of the North Korean CNE program. So I guess that would be the fifth party collect you were talking about. But once that started happening, we ramped up efforts to target North Korea ourselves. And then he says, Prince, as you don't want to rely on an untrusted actor to do your work for you, meaning they weren't content to continue essentially looping through South Korea to get to like South Korea's penetration into North Korea to get to North Korea. Our NSA wanted our own direct direct connections. So they said, but some of the work that was done there was able to help us gain access. I know of another instance, and he says, I'll be more vague because I believe there are more compartments involved and parts are probably NF, whatever that stands for, where there was an actor we were going against. We realized there was another actor that was also going against them, meaning North Korea, and having great success because of a zero day they wrote. We got the zero day out of passive and were able to repurpose it. Big win. But they were all still referred to as fourth party. So anyway, that's a a snippet of sort of what appears to be internal NSA dialogue among people who have certainly a high degree of, of, of privilege to, to what's going on, where, where they're saying that by, by initially getting in through some South Korean connections into North Korea, our networks, you know, the, the NSA had um, probes in North Korea. And so the, 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 the balance of David's story where he's explaining essentially what, he, what, what we now believe is going on is that, that the U.S. was able to be very rapidly definitive, much more so than anyone in the security community believed. All we had was oh well they were using some ip addresses and you know and and you know unfortunately while that might make the general public happy you know those of us who knew better knew that these were like you know widely known proxies i just that, i got to say that, this steve i can't let you go farther with that this okay. guy sanger was the same guy who told us that there were weapons of mass destruction in iraq based on government anonymous government sources he has been a channel in the New York Times for anonymous government sources before, which were not, ah. are not credible because it's basically that's he's repeating government propaganda. Now, the Snowden leaks, no one questions. Right. And, and I think rightly so. So the, the theoretical possibility of this being true is actually very high. But I would not credit that New York Times article in the least. And I'm not okay. alone. There's a very strong uh, opinion piece on errata security by Robert Graham. Uh, ah, yes, we who, know him. Who we know well, who says yeah. this is just not credible. It may be true, it may not be, 
But when you get government anonymous tips from government sources, it's not ah, journalism okay. to rehash them. It's merely re, you know repeating government propaganda. It's misinformation. Yeah. Just thought I'd point that out. No, I'm glad. Before yes. before we get too enamored of it, I mean, context. yeah, I mean the Snowden stuff, I completely credit. In fact, there was even some some speculation in the past that that wasn't real, but I think we pretty much agree now. There's no way this could be that could be faked. No, no. Um, and I trust Der Spiegel, but I don't know if you can trust this New York Times article. And it it, it kind of so I've always said, well, why would the president and the FBI lie? And he, and and what Robert Graham says is just exactly like the run up to war in Iraq, uh, and in fact, it's the same reporter at the New York Times who has the information. This guy has a history, a track record, uh, and when the U.S. government decides it wants to do a little saber rattling, they yeah, good point. The first person they call, so right. it doesn't confirm. It doesn't really confirm, in my opinion, uh, this information. Right. Although we obviously do have the means. Yeah, and um, um, I guess I guess it feels to me like it's uh, from, from from a technical standpoint, the the uh, internal NSA document feels right. I mean, it seems credible. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it it it's somebody who who feels like he's you know discussing among a trusted peer the kind of you know the, the kind of operation that they have. Um, in various facilities around the world, able to to do this kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm uh, again. You're, you're right. We don't know one way or the other. According to this is Sanger. According to the officials and experts who spoke on the condition of anonymity, that's always should be a red flag when you read that. And he doesn't have any public, you know, anybody who's besides the Snowden documents to publicly confirm it. So. Right. In fact, all he's got is a quote from a, a cyber warfare expert. Who says attributing where attacks come is incredibly difficult and slow, and that's what we've said from the beginning is that you know it just it's so difficult to know definitively and 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 we, we you know we've asked the question was there information that the government had that it wasn't disclosing that allowed it to state as definitive definitively as it did that North Korea was behind the right. attacks. And to further muddy it, uh, you've got that bastion of credibility, General James Clapper, who says, oh, yeah, oh. I, I had dinner with the guy last fall, he had, you know, the guy who did the attack. <laughs> so, come on. <laughs> this seems a little self-serving on their part, but. Yeah, uh, especially Clapper. You know how I feel about him. I, yeah. I, we we played the video. Of, he lied to us yeah, once. We played the video of him saying, you know, no, we're not spying on anybody. No, sir. While he was scratching his head and like, <laughs> which looked like a bad poker tell. Um, okay. So um, I, I wanted to share with our listeners my complete amazement over the fact that there appears to be a fabulous series starting on the sci-fi channel. Which I know sounds like an oxymoron. I mean that phrase, because <laughs> because I'm very I'm very picky about science fiction, and so it's it's aired for the first time Friday, the first episode. It is it is a first of all the title is Twelve Monkeys, which of course is a famous 
piece of science fiction Love with that Terry movie. Gilliam. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, people who have seen now the 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 first hour episode think this blows the movie away, and I'm I don't know where this came from because it is so unlike anything else that Sci-Fi Channel typically airs in that it's really good. And I just, I hope it, it maintains. But for, for, I know we have tons of sci-fi interested listeners. So I want to make sure that everyone at least knew that this, I'm sure they'll be re-airing it through the week. And the second episode will be uh, this coming Friday. So 12 monkeys on the sci-fi channel. Um, I also saw, uh, I don't know why, I guess it was because the Sunday shows were canceled because of the, for sports uh i found myself poking around a little bit uh looking for something to watch and there was a movie a a 2014 movie that uh was not well reviewed called automata a-u-t-o-m-a-t-a and um it's i mean you know i mean it's off of the chart it's uh, antonio banderas dylan mcdermott and, and a barely recognizable Melanie Griffith. I remember I was looking at her thinking, is that Melanie Griffith? Of course, I don't think I have seen her since Working Girl. She's so a lot of work. That's, that's, been, that's been a few decades. Yeah. Anyway, the movie was kind of haunting. Um, it's only $3.99 on Amazon Instant Video, and I'm sure you can find it on whatever your source of movies is. Anyway, I, I provisionally recommend it. I don't. I don't want to get anyone's hopes up too much. I mean, it's got some rough spots, but it's there's a lot of it that's well done. And even the the, the critics who didn't like it said, "Well, you know, it's got its moments." And I, it's it's interesting. And it actually come. It's I, I've thought of it again because toward the end of Mac Break Weekly, or maybe it was in between shows, you were talking about this question of. What happens as computers get more intelligent? And, you know, the the concerns that some, you know, legitimate computer scientists like, you know, Kurtzweil and so forth, Kurtzweil, I guess his name is, um, have the their worry about what happens when we actually succeed in making machines intelligent. Oh, a lot and, of people worried about that. Yeah. Yes. And this is Elon in so, Musk. So this is set. Yes. This is set in a in sort of the. The post-apocalyptic, the sun has overheated and the earth is sort of hostile to people. So we create machines in order to do a lot of the work and they have, they kind of get loose. Anyway, again, Automata, A-U-T-O-M-A-T-A, uh, 109 minutes long, not very, um, uh, I mean, it's not fabulous. That's why you haven't heard of it before. But for our audience who are sort of forgiving because a lot of them do watch stuff on the sci-fi channel. Um, I, 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 I could recommend it for a few dollars. Apparently so, also on Netflix for free. If you're already a subscriber. Oh, yay. Good. Then in that case, give it a try because, and, and it has a kind of a, kind of a, you're not sure what's going on at the beginning. It's sort of an awkward start, but then you kind of get into the groove and I liked it. I have to say, I, and I, I found myself kind of thinking about it, like affected by it, which, hmm. No, it doesn't That's, happen that often. Yeah, I use that as a as a metric. Did yeah. I think about it the next day? Then, you know, whether exactly. it was a great mo- show or not, it, it stimulated some thought. Yeah, there it 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 um 
it had some it had some good moments. Uh, speaking of a good moment, <laughs> um, there's a transition for you, a segue. Uh, in the middle of December, I just ran across this in my email from Sue. She forwarded it to me from a Jared Sutherland whose the, the subject was whew, exclamation point, Spinrite success story. <laughs> and he said, Steve, I've been listening to Security Now for several years now <laughs> and have been a fan of your site and research well before that time. I finally had a need for Spinrite for a friend whose Seagate drive, which contained very important data, went completely belly up. Now, this made me panic for a very specific reason. I configured backups for this system, but missed a poorly placed directory. And he has in parens, online backup over a slower connection. So I was selective about which folders were chosen. So that, which is to say he wasn't backing up the entire drive. He said, okay, I'll back up, you know, the documents directory and so on. But there was one that got away from him. He said, so I was able to restore most of the data I needed from the backup, but not this particular crucial chunk. I was sunk, or so I thought. A combination of Spinrite on level two and a bit of fridge time allowed me to mount this drive on my MacBook and pull the data off just in time. Spinrite saved my bacon. What a fantastic piece of software you have here. I will pass along my recommendation to any and all who end up in a position like me or who don't want to by keeping a good eye on their drive. Thank you. Three exclamation points, Jared Sutherland. Nice. And it's interesting because his mentioning the fridge reminded me that, you know, one of, and we're sort of beyond this point now, but one of the arguments that we encountered early in the, in the days of Spinrite was how could software fix hardware? It was like, you know, I mean, skeptics were saying, you know, wait a minute, you know, if the drive's bad, then you software can't fix it. And, of course, we know that the, the reality is that there's a large band of gray between good and bad on hard drives and that they actually deliberately operate kind of in the gray, relying on error correction to, to sort of keep them from going too deep into the gray or crossing into the, the dark um, and that essentially the drive and the OS and everybody will give up and just say, okay, it's too gray. Spinrite comes along and says nothing is too gray. Unless it's, unless it's really not even spinning any longer, we're going we're gonna to pull that one last time back from the dark into the light. And, of course, Spinrite's able to do that. There are some instances where the drive has sort of crossed over and one of the tricks one of the tricks is you you change the temperature you stick it in the fridge for half a day or a few hours to just to sort of throw in another variable it's like you know the drive is normally running hot and we can't get the data so let's cool it off and then you quickly plug it in and see if, if you can run spin right on it again, like in the area where it had a problem or just start it over. And 
and sort of introduce temperature as another thing to try. I mean, at this point, we're, you know, we're getting desperate. So, you know, refrigerator, fine. Uh, and sometimes, as many people have found, that's like the, the final little bit of magic to to bring it back from crossing over to, you know, to the other side. To the other side, yeah. exactly. So anyway, Jared, thanks for sharing and uh, reminding everybody about Spinrite. Excellent, Steve. Our topic uh, coming up, we're going to talk about, uh, I think uh, this is going to be a good one. I'm very interested uh, about the notion of backdoors. What does that mean? And does it yep. really break software to create a backdoor? But before we do that, let's talk about pager duty. Are you on call? You know the pain. I love this T-shirt. <laughs> Don't hate the pager. Hate the game. Pager duty makes it, it's an operations performance platform, an OPP that delivers visibility and actionable intelligence to help increase the uptime of your apps, servers, websites, and database. Frankly, if, you, uh, if you're if you relying on software and services to make sure you're always up, you need PagerDuty. As the hub of your operations, PagerDuty connects all your systems into a single view where you can see critical alerts across all your monitoring tools. They have now more than 100 ready to use integrations, Nagios, New Relic, Keynote, App Dynamics. You can even roll your own with their APIs. That's why Netflix and Airbnb and Microsoft and Boeing use PagerDuty. And you're going to love it, too, because it's going to make your life a lot better. Decrease the resolution time. When an incident occurs, PagerDuty notifies the right team member based on call uh, on-call schedules and personal learning preferences, and it will keep going. If alerts are missed, it automatically goes to the next team member, the next team member, automatically escalating until there's a solution. Dispatch alerts by automated phone calls, SMS, email, push notifications. Resolve incidents on the go so you can live your life even while you're on call. And, you know, decreasing the noise makes it a lot better. Incidents are automatically filtered and deduped to ensure you, you don't get 800 pages you you get you get the actionable alert and actually you can dump the pager cuz obviously with text messaging nowadays who needs a pager pager duty their analytics will identify common problems that means you can make system improvements and eliminate future outages and they are relentless when it comes to reliability fully distributed across multiple data centers and multiple hosting providers multiple contact method providers per method you will never miss an alert Right now, I want you to try it. Go to pagerduty.com slash twit. Get the right engineer on the right problem at the right time. A free 14-day trial awaits. In as little as $19 a month, you can increase your uptime with PagerDuty. And by the way, yes, you can get that T-shirt free. Don't hate the pager. Hate the game. Where's my Where's my T-shirt? I want that. pagerduty.com slash twit for the free 14-day trial. And the and the T-shirt, and we thank Pager Duty for their support. You should you should have that. I love that. <laughs> a great T-shirt. All right, back to the uh, back to uh, tech with Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. So we, you know we've never in the we're in our tenth year of the podcast expressly talked about backdoors. We refer to them many times, sort of. Um, in an offhand fashion or tangentially relative to something else. Like famously, we were, t we were talking last year about this notion of a backdoor when we, we discovered that that, that dual elliptic curve uh, uh, digital random bit generator, um, remember the DRBG, when 
when it was one of the four different algorithms in the NIST uh, formal uh, suite of, of, of pseudo-random number generators that was approved. And we, you know, started to be to, – to, to wonder about where it came from and whether it was trusted because it, it sort of had appeared in our products and it, it was slower than the other ones and had sort of an unknown backstory. So anyway, so th- then the, the, the reason this sort of came to the fore for me is that is of course in the last week uh, after the Paris attacks, uh, as we just talked about last week, David Cameron has famously been running all over the place talking about how um, how terrorists should should not be allowed to communicate in a way that the government cannot decrypt if it wants to. And and, and as I understand it, his his statement has been stronger than the one. The U.S. president, Barack Obama, echoed all, you know, Cameron came to the States and they were together um, and and essentially Obama was saying something similar, although maybe t- maybe not quite going as far as to say that we're going to have legislation to do this, which, as I understand it, Cameron has been saying yeah, I think, independent. I think the president was a little bit cagey about how he supported right. this. Yeah. Right, and and I want to talk about. By the way, it would be terrible for U.S. tech companies like Microsoft and Apple and Google, because who's going to want to use software with a back door? Well, and see, so okay, perfect segue because the back door is the term that everybody uses, except like Barack, uh, uh, Barack never said that. Cameron never said it. No one has ever used the term backdoor except those reporting on this. And and one of the problems, I think, is that that's the term we have. First of all, we've talked about how when you, for example, have an exploit named Heartbleed, you give it a, a fun name. It has it gets a lot more traction than if it if it's, you know, some CVE numerical designation that no one can remember. And and there's just this his, there's a rich, deep history of backdoors in in mystery novels and in sci-fi and and you know and and it it, it you, has you, this con you might Wait. remember this uh this moment in a little movie called war games <laughs> i want you to take a look at this did they talk about a backdoor here yeah hey what's that i want a gym to see that no truth to the rumor that that's Chris wow. Perillo. Where'd you get this? I was trying to break into Protovision. I wanted to see the program for their new games. Hey, wait, Tim, I'm not through yet. <laughs> Remember you told me to tell you when you were acting rudely and insensitively? Remember that? You're doing it right now. And a young Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Theater-wide biotoxic and chemical warfare. This didn't come from Protovision. You bet it didn't. Ask him where it did come from, Jim. Go ahead, ask him. I told you already. Looks military to me. Definitely military. Probably classified, too. Yeah, but if it's military, why does it have games like Checkers and Backgammon? Maybe because those are games that teach basic strategy. Jim, how do I get into that system? I want to play those games. You're not supposed to see any of that stuff. 
That system probably contains a new data encryption algorithm. You'll never get in there. <laughs> hey, I don't believe that any system is totally secure. I love this kid. I bet you Jim could get in. Yeah, I bet you he couldn't. I bet you he could. Well, you'll never get in through the frontline security, but you might look for a back door. A uh, back door! Okay, so, perfect segue. In computing, a back door is a method of bypassing the normal method of authentication. So whatever it is, it's a method of bypassing the normal method of authentication. A cryptographic backdoor is a secret, and I put in here, I, I was going to say a, a secret known only to the algorithm designer, and I put initially in parens to highlight the fact that the problem is that of needing to keep a secret. So a cryptographic backdoor is a secret initially known only to the algorithm's designers or implementers. And being a backdoor, the knowledge of that secret allows some aspects of the difficulty of decrypting the encrypted content to be bypassed, thus substantially weakening the algorithm's guarantee or promise of security. So a, a perfect example was... If, for example, that uh, dual elliptic, elliptic curve deterministic random bit generator had been designed to be weak, then there would be some characteristics of it which, to be a good backdoor, would withstand direct scrutiny. You know, other experts could look at it and scratch their head and say, yeah, it looks okay to me. And yet, there would be some properties of it which would elude observation such that the people who knew the secret would have an advantage in, in some fashion um, based on the, the purpose for which those random numbers were employed. So, so everybody has been correct in the asserting that a backdoor per se weakens security. Be and we, we know that because, because what that says is it, that there's a secret and secrets are notoriously difficult to keep su such that if it became known, then the security can to some degree be bypassed. So and so and so the clip from War Games is is another perfect example. Um, if there was a back door, then somebody installed it there, and these kids were going to attempt to discover it in order to go through the back door. The idea being that it's it's like it's a it's another way in, but it's but part of that is that it's not another front door. That is, it's it's not a sanctioned means for decrypting the content it's it's secret and when we were talking about enigma last week one of the one of the most the, one of the strongest aspects of the enigma technology was that the the polish mathematicians managed through a great amount of skill to reverse engineer the the entire machine itself based on enough samples of its output. 
And yet, even having the machine, that that because it was a keyed cipher machine, if they didn't have the key, then having the mechanism didn't help them. So what's different here is a backdoor, it, it sort of breaks that rule. It's, it says there's a de- there is a secret defect that can be exploited to allow someone to essentially bypass the need for the key. Um, so the point is the, 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 the thing, the, the, the main issue that I wanted to bring up and, and there's a lot to talk about this is that absolutely nothing prevents current crypto from, from operating with multiple keys. And in fact, we do that now. Um, we believe that the way iMessage works is when you, is that, Every user of iMessage has a private key which never leaves their device. It's generated in their device. That is a, a, a public key pair comp- composed of a private key and a public key are generated in the cryptographic element, the secure element in the iPhone, and the private key never leaves. The public key is sent to Apple for, for key management. And, and when you are generating a message that is intended for multiple recipients, the, that message contains multiple keys. Now, remember the way, remember that public key crypto isn't used for bulk encryption because it's just way too slow. So that this is why we need we also need for for cryptography a source of really good random numbers. So we have a really good random number generator. We we choose a random number which we then which is used to encrypt the the, the message. And then and then that random number is encrypted with the public key of the intended recipient because only the person who has the matching private key can decrypt that random number back to what it was and then use symmetric encryption or decryption in this case to get the message back. The point is that this makes encrypting for multiple recipients possible because you take that one random number and you in, you encrypt it first with one recipient's public key and attach that to the front of the message then you t- you you uh, then you take again that uh, the unencrypted random number and encrypt it with a different recipient's public key and attach it and then with a third and so forth so you you can you can arrange to send a message that contains essentially multiple multiple addressees for lack of a better term but the, the point being that that when the message is received the recipient will have have the ability to decrypt one of those multiple keys to get the original random number which was used to encrypt the message and thus decrypt it 
So I'm not, and I want to make sure everyone understands, I'm not advocating this at all. I mean, I'm, as, as everyone knows, I, I aborted a, 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 you know, CryptoLink, the work I was going to do on a VPN, specifically because there was a threat that something like this could be coming along. And at this point in our, in the evolution of information technology and networking, we're, we're sort of at a, inflection point, I think. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how the next few years go because it the the one argument that cannot actually be made is that that necessarily allowing the government access to our in, in some means of access to our communications, um, weakens it. Now, the problem is also that, and, and I, you'll probably remember the exact phrase, Leo. I, I, I was, I, I couldn't remember what it was, but it's something that there, there. There's an old saying, something like, you know, once you tell one other person a secret, it's no longer a secret. Another great Ben Franklin quote, I think. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And and so we you, we cannot argue against the fact. That that there's a tremendous burden of responsibility associated with managing this, but but here's the way it would work, just to like lay out the theoretical framework, and that is that the U.S. government, some some you know, I'm I'm sure the NSA or the FBI, somebody who knew what they were doing, um, law enforcement broadly, would create a master public key pair. The private key would be well guarded. The public key, everyone would know. That is, that would be, it would be like, you know, go to the website, download our public key. And so in this, and again, I want to make sure everyone understands I am not advocating this. I'm just we, – we have to talk about the technology separate from the ethics and all the, you know, the politics and everything else. But the technology would be that, that a presumably a law would have been established which does require that any legal encrypted traffic – be decryptable by duly empowered law enforcement. And the technical means for achieving that would be that when we're going through the process of, of you know, any, well, quote, legal under this draconian law, but still, you know, if it happens, the way we do that is while we're going through this process, the that in that keying phase that law the US government's public key is used also to redundantly encrypt the symmetric key and that's part of the payload of the message so so it is it is as secure as the math Subject, of course, to the management of this key. So, so we don't have a secret like the war games guys or like the classic notion of a backdoor. 
What we have is a redundant keying of all legal cryptography. Um, and I'm being careful with my phraseology because, you know, we'll talk about, you know, the point you raised last week, Leo, that, well, the bad guys won't use that. Of, and of course, they'll use illegal cryptography or crypto cryptography, which doesn't, which cannot be decrypted, um, which does exist and will always exist. And hopefully this argument will will keep this this draconian, you know, 1984 Big Brother crypto from ever happening. But just as a matter of technology, then the the idea would be that this cryptography that was legal under this draconian law would all carry the, a a key that could be decrypted only by the U.S. government's law enforcement private key, um, which they would have to be, you know, have to keep absolutely secret. And presumably there would be some um, some process. You would, you know, the, the NSA would do bulk data collection of well, may, maybe everybody. And then when there was a, when they recognized that some terrorists had been operating under their nose, they would pull the communications from that group of people and um, and pull the the headers off the packets, send that somewhere to be to have those keys decrypted and then get them back and then be able to decrypt back into plain text. I mean, you know, it's burdensome. But anyway, the 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 the, the my main motivation was just to, to bring the point up that that we don't need a back door because the technology we have today could allow that. So this is obviously still fraught with problems because, you know, as, as you immediately mentioned correctly last week, um, we have it is math. And if the, if there are, quote, legal cryptographic systems under such a law, there will all that will do is it will create an underground of of cryptographic systems that don't have the government key on it for anybody who wants to encrypt data that can't be decrypted under this technology. This is actually Skipjack, which was a uh, is a crypto uh, system proposed by the NSA. Um, remember the Clipper chip, which is yep. by the way, despite all the hoorah about it in our TVs <laughs> today. But that used skipjack, and the idea was there were uh, there was an escrow process for a second government key, and uh, that that key would be held in escrow and uh, would need legal authorization um, for releasing. Um, I'm going to yeah, and and go ahead, and 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 that's a very good point. Um, in my model, there's one super galactic master government key. But a, a safer way to do this would be, for example, if Apple wanted to, com to do commercial cryptography for the privacy of its users subject to such a law, then they could give the government a, an Apple iMessage private key 
And then, you know, the Apple technology would always incorporate the matching public key as an additional key in Apple communications. And similarly, Google could do it. And, you know, the, 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 the point is anybody who wanted any commercial entity that wanted to sell crypto in this climate could produce a public key pair and and turn over the private key to law enforcement agencies so that they're able to decrypt the traffic uh, given, you know, proper means and needs and protocol and so forth. I guess, you know, so it, it reminds me of this conversation over Skipjack. And one of the issues, in fact, I'm looking at a, um, a testimony from uh, 19, I don't know, 94, I think, uh, from Whit Diffie. 93, yeah. about Skipjack. And one of the things he points out is that uh, and he doesn't have a problem with the, uh, the key escrow, but he says if you don't make the algorithm for Skipjack public, it can't be vetted by crypto. We've talked about this many times. can't be right. vetted by crypto experts, and therefore we can't be sure it's secure. Yeah, and that, so that was 22 years ago or 23 years yeah. ago, back when we were sort of still thinking of re- remember that like RSA the the famous RC4 cipher that is in you know that has now been discredited because of the way it was implemented in the early WEP Wi-Fi that was a secret it was proprietary there was a time when these algorithms were not published were not vetted by uh by the academic or the 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 crypto community and we just sort of had to trust that they were good yeah and, you know, the good news is we're past that point now. Now we've got highly vetted, you know, scrutinized. I mean, we're actually we're using public competitions in order to choose what the next cipher will be. So, you know, arguably as democratic and, and academic a process as as we've been able to come up with so far, where, again, it's the you know, the algorithm itself is solid and it's the key that is the secret, yeah. which is, you know, much stronger crypto. Uh, let me. T- we're going to take one more uh, break, um, and maybe we'll have some final thoughts in just a second. Steve Gibson, and we're talking security on uh, Security Now. Our show, as always, brought to you by the good folks at Citrix. They do such great stuff, including go to assist. If you're in the IT business or you support software, you know I'm sure you've heard of go to assist, which is, I, I believe, still the number one leader, the number one global market leader in remote support. Uh, with GoToAssist, uh, if you're in IT, if you're in support, you can handle support requests quickly and easily. You can do it from a mobile device to a mobile device. You can do it, uh, you know, so if you're on the road and you've got an iPad, no problem. Use GoToAssist to, to solve that urgent tech support problem. Make sure your network security is never compromised, too. GoToAssist is absolutely secure, easy to use. It's a cloud-based remote support solution that allows you and your team to solve problems faster than ever. Go to Assist Remote Support can provide live and unattended support to any computer or mobile device. You can screen share with employees to diagnose and fix their support problems faster and more effectively, and they like it too. They like the attention, but you can also use it unattended. You can even use Go to Assist apps to deliver support anytime, anywhere from your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. If you work in IT... I want you, even if you have another solution, I want you to try go to assist. You'll see how great it is. I use this all the time and very affordable. Sign up today for that free 30-day trial. No contract, no credit card needed. Just visit gotoassist.com and click the try it free button. G-O-T-O assist.com. Citrix go to assist. 
the number one market leader in remote support, and for a good reason. Try it free for 30 days now at gotoassist.com. So what do you think is going to happen, Leo? I mean, you're as clued in to all of what's going on as as well, any I of us. That. I know you listened to our conversation on uh, on Twitter with Ian. Oh Thompson. my God! I I, I I I I also wanted to say fabulous panel yeah. on Twit on Sunday. So really, Ian Thompson really, of really. the Register, and he's a Brit, of course, and gave us the kind of the British perspective on why Cameron would say such a thing, whether it's political or real, etc. We had Ben Thompson from Taipei, Taiwan. He's uh, the uh, probably the smartest analyst out there. Uh, his, uh, yeah, really, really isn't he great. Sharp. His uh, website, really Stratechery, is uh, for me must read um, uh, stuff. Uh, and and they're they're just so great, so smart, and it was a lot of fun. And who was the third? Now I've forgotten. Um, ben, it was a, the a two d- Thompsons, the Thompson twins, a, ga- <laughs> a gal. Um, <laughs> oh, of course, Serenity Caldwell, the great Serenity, Serenity. Caldwell primer. So yeah, I thought it was a good conversation, and and Ian. You know, I said, Ian, is this is does Cameron mean this to be a law? And he said he thinks he he does. I said there's certainly political motivations. You know, the uh, his party is being pushed from the right by UKIP and others, and so you want to look strong on terrorism. But I think the consensus was that perhaps Cameron doesn't understand the technological issues. But I have to say, and I had just accepted uncritically this idea that a back door weakens. Encryption. I mean, if Cory Doctorow says it, it must be true. But, but you know, you're absolutely right. I st- when you started the show, I said, well, wait a minute. Let me do the thought experiment. Of course you could have right. some sort of uh, secure key escrow. Uh, right. You have to trust that this escrow system works and doesn't have leaks. Um, but if you believe, str- you know, uh, that uh, strong encryption is effective, hackers are more, no more likely to break that than your key. Right. A private key is and- a private key. And uh, you know, one thing, one one thought I had was was whether d- posing the question isn't metadata enough. That is, we we've we've argued that metadata is a big intrusion as it is, even without knowing what the conversation is. Knowing what the network of connected people are is a huge intrusion, and I, I wonder if that's not enough of a compromise. But you know, I, I I listen to the talk. I you know, I'm I'm an avid politico. I follow politics. I listen to these guys talking, and and you know, th- th- this argument of of wow, you know, how how can we allow conversations to occur that we can't monitor? And I mean, we we know how. We we believe that. That there are other means for uh, for acquiring that same information, you know, plant bugs in the people's m- machines, microphones, you know, near them. I mean, do do other things rather than just the the opportunity for wholesale decryption of everyone's private communications. But I, I just I don't have much faith in <laughs> in the, in the in the understanding of how intrusive that would be um, within our lawmakers. Yeah. I think that's the problem. And, you know, it's not going to take long before somebody, if they haven't already, pulls Cameron or Obama aside and says, excuse me, you understand that this would be devastating for the economy of UK or the United States, that no one would buy products from the United States ever again. That I mean, it's just, it's a, I think it's a non-starter. Uh, although I've had lots of email and tweets from uh, uh, listeners in the UK who say, "Oh, you don't understand. They 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 mean to do this." And even Ian Thompson said, 
you know, nobody probably would have believed the proposal a few years ago that all Internet traffic be filtered uh, in the U.K., and it is. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe, I mean, I don't, maybe it is something well, that they could do. And, but, boy, they have to isolate themselves as a, as a country. We do know, for example, that that corporations are increasingly proxying their networks with um, with hardware that allows them to inspect in the SSL the the TLS traffic of all of their users. That that's happening because more and more traffic on the internet is becoming encrypted, and yeah. and it's it's not it's just not feasible for a corporation not to be able to see into the traffic that is entering its corporate network. So they're intercepting with with, uh, with HTTPS proxies uh, in order to perform malware and, and traffic inspection increasingly. And we know that there are uh, ed- educational systems that are doing the same thing. So, I mean, it, it's, it's tough. I, you know, the, 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 in terms of legal processes, one of the things that I was imagining w- w- was that imagine an, an, an environment where it is it is illegal to use encryption that that cannot be turned into plain text. So that if you do encrypt, then if asked, you must be able to decrypt on demand or suffer the consequences of of being unwilling to provide decryption for for what's encrypted. I mean, maybe that's sort of a uh, a half measure. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, th- th- I, and mostly what I wanted to make the point was that, that unfortunately, we really don't have the argument uh, from an academic standpoint, yeah. from a technical standpoint, that giving the government access you know, weakens our crypto. It uh, it could be, it would be an additional layer of headache and management. But, you know, if, if, if commercial entities doing crypto gave the government a second, you know, created a second key and gave the government uh, a, a, a private key that allowed them access, that doesn't weaken it at all, unfortunately, yeah. Ex- you know, subject to the need to manage that properly. Right. But, you know, we see people able to manage, you know, all of our certificate authorities are That's able to manage the, right. their private keys right. so that no one else is able to get it. Um, anyway, I wanted to I wanted to put that on the radar because uh, you're it's right. important. I, that's why we love you because you, you're you're a stickler for, stickler for accuracy, um, even if you agree with the sentiment behind the inaccuracy. <laughs> yes. Uh, did you get this from Kerry Parker? I just wanted to mention this. It's called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. No, he, interesting. Yeah, he said he sent you one, so uh, he said he wasn't sure if he got the address. It might have gone. It might have gone to our corporate mail. Probably mail did, stop. which means you'll get it eventually. Yeah. A step-by-step yes. guide to computer security for non-techies. He writes as a software engineer, a political junkie, and concerned citizen. I felt the need to do something huh. about the current sorry state of affairs with regard to security and privacy. I think most people are just too intimidated by technology, so they just throw their hands up. So he's he's written a book on how to secure your computer, how to get your privacy. He says, I've been listening to security now for probably four years. I never miss an episode. It was a real inspiration to me. And I've included multiple references to Steve and the podcast in the book. Ah. So that's cool. I, he doesn't mention where you can get it. I, it. I would hope it's on Amazon. I think probably everything is. Uh, and it looks pretty good. I've just flipped through it. I just got it uh, while we were talking. But he talks about LastPass and 
password, you know, I mean, all the stuff that you need. It seems like it would be a useful, uh, you know, how to create a master password. And and we talk about how to use a song lyric to create a password. Yeah. And, and, and it's all in here. So I think he's done, uh, you know, two-step authentication. I think he's done a great job. And he's obviously been uh, heavily influenced uh, by you. So... Well, and it looks like the the, the notion of oh, uh, it, it looks like the, the notion of firewalls is sort of a a, a generic term, right? Because um, he's, he's talking about all kinds you gotta of do, different. You got to do something. It's not about firewalls particularly. It's about how you got to do more than just have a firewall, or you know, or a. Uh, I love this. He talks about the uh, the Christmas story. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> anyway, this, <laughs> remember that. He used yeah. the secret decoder ring, and that's what the the mess secret message was: drink your Ovaltine. So uh, I kind of I kind of like this. Um, just flipping through it, so I just thought I'd mention it. And since he is a fan, cool. and he mentions the show. Uh, it's called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I think it's self published by Carrie uh, C A R E Y Parker. And thank nice. you, Carrie, for passing this uh, along. We will. We should, probably should have saved it for the feedback episode because that's next week, right? That's we're going to I'm sure we will. I didn't even look in the mailbag. I, I wanted to. But when when this issue of the back doors came up, I thought, nope, we have to just clarify that one technical issue that unfortunately we don't have that to fall back on. Uh, so I'm sure there'll be lots of questions, maybe about Enigma. That was a super oh, popular wow. yeah. episode last week. So, uh, yes, Q&A. And then everybody wants the detour episode, Gotta which do I, it. you know, it, it'll be it'll be the one that follows unless you know <laughs> hell breaks loose uh, in the meantime. But I will, but I, it, believe me, it's like right there in my notes to, to talk about uh, how much we can trust Tor. And, oh, it, and there it, it is, is on Amazon. Amazon uh, Seventeen dollars forty three cents. Nice just came out. And we were talking last week. Uh, I'm going to throw one more thing in, and then we're going to wrap it up. Yeah. We were talking last week about um, the historical inaccuracies. In uh, the imitation game, you and I both loved it as a movie. I'm sure it will Great get. A, movie. A, it was nominated for nine Academy Awards, I think. Wow, or was that the one known? A Birdman was, but I think it, it was. I think, Benedict, I think like seven. Yeah, I think quite a few. Seven. And Benedict Cumberbatch was nominated for Best Actor. It was nominated as Best Picture. Um, but we did talk about the fact that in some ways it slanders Alan Turing's memory, which is sad, mm. saying that yeah. he was a craven traitor in effect. Um, so. Uh, I, somebody in the chat room said this, and I meant to mention it. Cryptonomicon, which is my all-time favorite book of all. I mean, just the greatest Neil book. Neil Stevenson. Brilliant yep. guy. Great writer. I mean, really one of our best writers. And he happens to be technically super literate, super right on. They talk about Enigma a lot in there and in a historically accurate fashion. Uh -huh. So if you want a great novel that is about crypto, and that is fun to read. I mean, it's something great and has quite a bit of Alan Turing and Enigma in there. Cryptonomicon. It's not a historical. Well, it is kind of. It's a novel with historical stuff in it. Yeah, and it's long. It'll it'll oh, it'll so keep good. you going. <laughs> it'll keep you going for a while. So good. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much. Yes, feedback next week. God and hackers willing. <laughs> uh, if the if the good Lord willing and the creeks don't rise, we'll do uh, we'll do right. questions and answers next week. You can ask your question at grc.com slash feedback. Don't email uh, Steve. You can also tweet him, though. He is at sggrc on the Twitter. I try uh, to keep an eye on my feed and yeah. uh, and and use that. Good, good way to interact with him. Um, and, of course, while you're at the site grc.com, pick up a copy of Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. And then that's the only thing he charges for. The rest of it, there's so much great stuff, and it's all free. Lots of good information. 
uh, from the wide-ranging mind of Steve Gibson, <laughs> GRC.com. He also has 16-kilobit versions of this show. He's got transcriptions there. Uh, we have high-quality audio and video from the show at our site, twit.tv slash SN for security now. And, of course, you can always subscribe at your favorite podcast cast uh, pavilion, you know, iTunes or whatever you uh, like to use. Steve, have a great week. Thank you for, uh, you know, I know politically you're on the side of people who hate this idea, this David Cameron idea, but the fact, but this is what I love about you. You know, the fact is a fact and we got to be honest about the facts. Yeah. Thanks so much, Steve. We'll talk again next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.